I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. One of the things that I've become obsessed with while doing this job is the Pleistocene. That's the nerd name for the most recent Ice Age. In particular, I'm really taken with the late Pleistocene, the time in which the ice was melting back, and in its place came everything. Plants, animals, people. What if there were a way to see that time? To feel what it was like to live just past the edge of the ice. So maybe you could just describe the, our surrounds here. Yeah, so we're in a depression, a depression in the landscape of about 40 or 50 feet. And uh, right here in the depression, it's fairly flat, kind of hummocky. You're hearing Tom Lee. We've interviewed Tom before. He was a botanist at the University of New Hampshire who retired just a tiny bit before we recorded this. We took this walk on one of the few genuinely cold days in a distressingly warm New England winter. What, about 15, 20 degrees? It said 19 on, on my car. 19? Yeah. We're in one of the most unique places I've ever visited in New England. It's like a giant, nearly perfect circular bowl. Imagine one of those movies where the protagonists are walking around confused in some huge depression and the camera zooms back and you realize they're in some kind of giant dinosaur footprint. It's kind of like that. Okay, now here we are in the center and you can really see the shape of this thing. And it's, it's, it almost looks like someone came in here with a bunch of excavators and dug out like a, an arena. And almost perfect circle, just a little bit more oval than a circle. It's remarkable. Uh, and of course, that was caused by, apparently, by uh, the a residual chunk of ice. So get your deep time hat on, your deep time goggles. 15,000 years ago, this spot was covered with ice. Ice that's melting away, slowly, over thousands of years. Each year, this glacier the size of a continent was a little bit smaller. And as the edge of that ice gets to here, this spot, maybe like 8,000 years ago, something happens. Maybe 
An iceberg the size of a city block falls off and crashes to the ground below. It sits there for another, who knows, couple hundred years, and sand and rocks and dirt, the detritus of the millenniums-long geological siege that the glaciers had been waging on the bedrock beneath them, piles up around the block of ice like a donut. It's likely the glacier continued to create outwash around this chunk of ice as it sat there. And then um, when the glacier was gone and the temperatures warmed, the ice melted and left a depression with a pool in the bottom. Most water bodies, and maybe this sounds kind of dumb to observe, but most water bodies are formed by flowing water. But because of the unique origin story of this bog, it's got some unique properties. The only water flowing in comes from rain or melting snow, and there's nowhere for water to flow out. This results in a couple of things. The water is very low in nutrients, which leads to certain plants taking over, notably a thick mat of something called sphagnum moss, which stretches over the surface of the water. In the summer when you're out here, uh, you can literally bounce up and down on this thing. It's uh, like a trampoline. As a quick disclaimer, this is probably something that we should not be encouraging you to do because leave no trace and all that. And I, and I actually would like to say that it's more like jumping on a waterbed than a trampoline, but it is true. The moss squelches and sags beneath you. The water seeps through and soaks you up to your shins. The moss grows slowly from the edges, covering the water. And in many bogs, there's an eye of open water in the middle. Right around the eye is the floating mat. So if we dug down from where we're standing, we'd eventually come to free water. Sphagnum was used as diapers by people throughout boreal regions and for binding wounds by ancient Gaelic and Irish warriors. But it's also the engineer of this ecosystem. To make use of what little nutrients there are in the water, it pumps out acid. The water in this bog has both the color and the acidity of coffee. This is why so-called bog bodies, people whose remains are found preserved in bogs, are so well preserved. The acidic water pickles them like a big bog pickle. That acidity also means you get an unusual mix of plants in these bogs. Members of the heath family, highbush blueberry, uh, leatherleaf, um, bog rosemary, plants you don't really find uh, commonly out there in the landscape. And there's some black spruce down here too. And those are plants that uh, you find more commonly way up north, up in the boreal forest. In spots like this, there's this lifting of the veil. It's one of those places where you can see geologic forces except in real time. This is what it would have looked like as the Pleistocene ended, when the ice was still part of our collective memory, and when the mammoths were still roaming the New England steppe. And, uh, and so it's a very unique flora here. It's, it's like stepping back into the Ice Age. This is a mire, a muskeg, a moorland. This is a kettle bog. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Today on the show, another of our occasional series, 10 by 10, where we dive deep into places often overlooked. This time around, beneath the shrubs, the sedges, the rushes, and the moss of the bog, there's something else, peat. It's been piling up for millennia, but what happens to it in the next hundred years may well define our future. Today, we're going deep 
on Pete. We're here down at the Lafroig peat beds, uh, a very special place for us. And what we do here, this is where we cut the peats to give us the flavour in the kilns when we flavour the malted barley. What do you think of when you hear the word peat? How do you how do you cut peat? Well, you need to use tools like this here. Now, this is if you're like members of the Outside In team, you may think of scotch. Which is why producer Justine Paradise gathered us all for a little tasting session. I can smell it like across the table. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And called up Karen Newman, the spirits editor of Wine Enthusiast magazine. The thing is about scotch is that it's made only with just a, a very small handful of ingredients. It's made with barley, it's made with water, it's made with yeast, and that's it. Time. And time. <laughs> nice. Barley, water, yeast, and thyme. But there's one more ingredient in some scotches that's allowed. Peat. Well, I mean, it's only sort of, but not even really an ingredient. So uh, the peat is dug up from peat bogs, and then it is, uh, it's drained, it's put into a kiln, and the smoke is then allowed to flavor the, the barley. And then the barley later is fermented and distilled and miraculously retains the the smoky flavor from the peat smoke. But as any scotch aficionado will tell you, and I have learned that we have at least two who work for our podcast, Jimmy and Erica. Like if people order at a bar, they're getting 90%. Like the majority of what they're ordering is coming from Speyside. Mm -hmm. McAllen. McAllen. This is where bartender Jimmy's really coming out. I love this. Pete is a broad category. If you go to Isla, for example, the the flavor there, I mean, the tasting notes you get are things like uh, seaweed and smoked bacon and smoked salmon and barbecue. When I was at Glenfiddich, they described it as tastes and smells like gasoline. <laughs> In a good way. I was like, how dare you? (laughs) Each region has its own kind of peat, its own peaty flavors, its own peatoir. If you head a bit further north to Orkney, it's more wetland vegetation and all that constant sea spray means that the plants don't really grow so well. And you wind up with a more herbaceous, pine-like earthy flavor. Does it taste like a wetland to you? Campfire. And then Lafroig. Lafroig select. Mm -hmm. Brooding. Wow. My mouth is tingling. Peppery. Is this your best day at work ever? (laughs) It was exciting buying all this. This is perhaps how most people have interacted with Pete. They know it in the abstract, a flavor. But if it's something that we're cutting and something we're burning, what is it? And, and okay, just like one to ask this once again in, in sort of brute layman's terms, what is peat? Peat is dead, formerly living plant material. That was Tom Lee again, and this is Ruth Varner. We find peatlands in all climatic regimes, essentially, and what you really need is you need a place that is is wet. Another researcher at the University of New Hampshire who studies peatlands, a colleague of Tom's. And so what happens is when a system is saturated, the rates of decomposition of that organic matter that's there are really slow. So low decomposition. Why? 
in a rushing, bubbling creek, the water has some oxygen. But bogs form in places where the water is just slowly seeping in from the rain. There's no inlet and no outlet. Well, there's several things going on. One is that um, you do have uh, still water. And as a result, um, oxygen tends to be depleted from the water by the plants and other organisms growing here and isn't recharged. Most of the bacteria that decompose stuff use oxygen to break things down and produce carbon dioxide as a byproduct. But in a bog, they can't go to work. They don't have any fuel. So all these crumbling plant corpses, all this carbon-based material just piles up and up and up. The rates of decomposition of that organic matter that's there are really slow. And so they're slower than the amount of organic matter that's being input to the system. And so you get an accumulation of carbon over time. And these are this is the time span we're thinking of is thousands and thousands of years. Imagine, under your feet in a bog like this, layered dead plants might go down one, two, three, even four stories, an inverted skyscraper of stored carbon. And so uh, over 10,000 years, there's been an accumulation here of at least 45 feet of peat. That's amazing. That's amazing. (laughs) And we're just standing in one particular bog, my personal favorite kind of bog, this kettle bog formed by a depression left by a big chunk of ice. But there are many different kinds of peatlands. Around here, in temperate regions... Where it's pretty dominated by mosses, so you're thinking about sphagnum moss, which you probably may have used in gardening, added peat moss to your, uh, to your garden. This is the peat that's flavoring your scotch whiskey. We gotta do a little wafting. Gotta, gotta oh, do Oh yeah, little... she said the aroma is where a lot of, especially with the peaty ones, is where... But there's also subtropical and tropical peat. Peatlands um, in tropical systems are probably going to be more... Um, fibrous with tree remains of trees in them, so you're going to actually have, you know, um, large trees that might fall into a, a saturated system and then be part of that peatland. So if you, for example, took a core of peat from a tropical system, it's going to have a really different texture. These also include mangrove swamps, which are one of the most effective ecosystems in the world when it comes to sucking carbon out of the atmosphere and are expanding thanks to climate change, according to one 2015 study. And, of course, Arctic peat, which includes the infamous permafrost. Permafrost is defined as uh, ground that is permanently frozen for two years or more. In all of these environments, there's a weird thing going on. Plants need nutrients to thrive, and peat is full of nutrients, but the plants... They can't get to it. There's sort of an irony here. Uh, We have 45 feet in some places of peat. Pure organic material. Pure, with all kinds of nutrients in it, you know, nitrogen, phosphorus, calcium, magnesium. It's not accessible to these uh, plants and other organisms because the decomposers can't break this stuff down. And so, somewhat hilariously, all these plants are short of nutrients and they're doing everything they can to kind of build up their nutrient levels. Um, Many of them are evergreen. Keeping your leaves, not shedding them is one way to conserve nutrients, especially nitrogen. Um, but some of the plants here are carnivorous. We have uh, purple uh, pitcher plants here as well as sundews. And there's also bladderwort. These are three carnivores that live in this bog. And so um, they're, they're ad- adapted essentially to low nutrient conditions and carnivory enables them to help them survive in a place like this. Most ecosystems accumulate carbon up to a point. 
eventually they reach a kind of equilibrium, a stage at which they're releasing as much as they're taking up. But bogs are different. Peatlands are, in essence, one route to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Lock it up in plants, and then when those plants die, lock it up underwater, and then with the passage of geologic time, lock it up in rock. But we've been focusing on peat formed in places like New Hampshire, places where the reason the peat stays peat is because it stays wet. But 80% of all of the carbon that's locked up in peat isn't there because it's wet, but because it's frozen. After a break, we'll talk about permafrost. So there's a signal that we're seeing from space, from satellites, in the Arctic, on the ground, and that's a sort of greening of these landscapes. I want to introduce you to Isla Myers-Smith and her collaborator, Jeff Kirby. I interviewed them at the same time and remotely, which can be awkward. Well, so, do you want to start? Sure, I'll I'll just say something really briefly here. Um, They're both ecologists, Isla at the University of Edinburgh and Jeff at the Aarhus Institute of Advanced Studies in Denmark. So what scientists say is there's a lot of carbon stored in Arctic peat. How much? The projection is that if uh, a lot or most of that carbon was released from those permafrost soils, that would double the atmospheric CO2 concentration. So it is quite a lot of carbon, and there's still debate going on about exactly how much carbon that is. I will repeat this fact because it is a whopper of a fact. If all of the carbon stored in permafrost were released, it would double the CO2 in the atmosphere. This is perhaps the most dreaded of all climate feedback loops. As the world gets warmer, the soil in the Arctic that usually stays frozen all year round starts to thaw. As it thaws, it starts to sink, subside. Riverbanks, slump, and mini landslides expose organic material that's been locked up in the ice for millennia to all of those little hungry microbes in the air that want to eat them up and turn them into carbon dioxide, which in turn makes the world warmer. Some people have called this the carbon bomb. So there's a a very, I think, a legitimate theoretical concern about this, this carbon bomb. But, and I don't say this lightly, talking to Isla and Jeff made me realize The question of what the heck is going to happen in the Arctic as the world warms up and how fast is maybe one of the most complicated ones we've ever grappled with. And we're only, like, part way through grappling with it. For example, trees are starting to grow on the tundra where they never grew before, which trap more carbon, but might trap more snow, which might insulate the ground better in the winter, which might melt more permafrost, which might release all that carbon, but how long might that take? Can I add another level of complexity here? Oh, <laughs> just to, to fully blow your mind. Isla and Jeff study plants. They look at them in person, on the ground, using drone photography and using satellites. But all of those measurements are just what's happening above the ground. And a lot of the really important questions about what's happening to carbon in this system are happening below the ground. And the below ground is just a black box at the moment, uh, especially in tundra ecosystems. So this question, what the heck is going to happen to all of that Arctic peat, all that carbon that before we started monkeying around with the thermostat was going to just stay down there? It's probably the biggest known unknown in the world of climate change right now. 
Something that kind of blew my mind when reporting this, those global climate models that we've been using to try to get a glimpse of our future, most of them don't even model permafrost. When it comes to Arctic peat, the models just shrug. That's just one of the challenges of dealing with nonlinear feedbacks, though. They're, they're hard to study. But here's another thing about peat. If you leave it alone, if we let it pile up, if we give it long enough, that kettle bog where we started out turns into something else. Maybe trees start to grow on top of the peat. Maybe a river changes course and buries it under sediment. Maybe tectonic plates drift, continents shift. The peat is folded, heated, compressed. The organic matter that we're storing will, over you know, many <laughs> millions of years, become some kind of um, fossil fuel. There was one particularly peaty time in the Earth's history, back before the dinosaurs, in the days of Pangaea, the days where there was much more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, a much warmer, much wetter, much swampier time. It was called the Carboniferous Era. And that's when most of the Earth's coal was formed. And so that carbon that accumulated there actually, yes, has become the coal that we use now. So if you ever get a chance to tromp over a floating mat of sphagnum moss, stretched like a thin sheet over the bouncy waterbed of a partially frozen bog, just remember that beneath your feet is the source of our whole current climate predicament, as well as, arguably, one of its solutions, too. An ancient sink, an inverted skyscraper of carbon. Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, with help from Taylor Quimby, Justine Paradise, and Jimmy Gutierrez. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is director of Hiding Whiskey in Studio Safe No-Spill Containers. Just as a small side note, these are unprecedented times, and our lives are all pretty tumultuous. The Outside In team is all working remotely, recording ourselves and our interviews in closets and basements and attics. And we just want you to know that, hey... We're here with you. So we'd love to get some feedback on what you'd like to hear from us going forward. Do you want Outside In to tell you more things about epidemiology and health? Or do you want us to just keep making the show, keep doing what we're doing? Let us know by reaching out however you please. Our email is outsidein at nhpr.org. You can find us on Twitter at Outside In Radio. And on Facebook, most of our activity is happening in our closed Facebook group. We keep it closed so as to keep it friendly and civil and moderated. But just click and we'll let you right in. Music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions, Poddington Bear, and Ikimashu Oi. Our theme music was by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Thank you.